from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Greg Dahl, an American Baha'i now living in Bulgaria. Greg went to Harvard to study physics, but ended up getting his Ph.D. in economics. After college, Greg worked for the International Monetary Fund for the World Bank for 27 years. His work took him to such countries as Haiti, Sierra Leone, and Madagascar. In the interview, we discuss globalization and his new book, One World, One People, How Globalization is Shaping Our Future. I started the interview by asking Greg where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Uh, well, I grew up in California, Palo Alto area where I was born, and then the Carmel, California area, a beautiful place. Uh, my father was an investment counsel, so he found lots of wealthy people in the Carmel area to advise on their investments. And we were members of the Baha'i faith, which set us apart in those days because uh, there weren't that many Baha'is. We had to travel quite a long way to find other Baha'i kids, for instance, to have uh, children's classes. Mm. And one of my fond memories was going every summer to the Baha'i summer school at uh, Geyserville, north of uh, San Francisco. Beautiful place with a very special uh, atmosphere of Baha'i community and excitement about uh, learning about Baha'i teachings. Mm -hmm. Do you know how your parents became Baha'is? Yes, uh, my mother had been a roommate of a Baha'i at Stanford in the 1920s, although her roommate, who later became quite uh, well-known, Marian Hoffman. There was another uh, Baha'i, Marzia Gale, who came through and gave a talk in their sorority, and my mother showed some interest. And then when she graduated, there was suddenly the Depression, and so my mother went for a year to live with her sister, who was living with her husband in Paris, Marion's mother wrote to the Baha'is in Paris, and particularly to Laura Clifford Barney, who is well known among Baha'is as the compiler of the book Some Answered Questions, a book of uh, questions that she posed to Abdu Baha'i uh, and recorded his uh, answers. Now, Greg, can you quickly tell the folks who Abdul Baha was? Yeah, sure. Uh, Abdu Baha was the eldest son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, and he for many years was imprisoned along with his father, and then after his father's passing in what is now uh, Israel, in Palestine. So Laura Clifford Barney had to, to travel t- to Palestine to interview him, mm-hmm. and recorded this, uh, his uh, comment in this important book. Marion's mother wrote to her uh, to say that this young uh, woman from California was uh, going to Paris, and should be invited to Baha'i gatherings. My mother duly received an invitation and went to those meetings. And in those days, there wasn't an official registration in the Baha'i community. It was a small community at that time. Uh, but when she was on the boat back, in those days there were no planes, so on the boat back from Paris, 
uh, she was reading some of the materials that the Baha'is in Paris had given her and decided that this, in fact, was true, that she believed it, and she uh, looked up the Baha'is in California and became active in the community. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, after my parents were married, it was some years later that my father uh, became a Baha'i, and he eventually was elected to the Baha'i governing body for the United States and became its treasurer and was quite a well-known member of the community. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in this Baha'i environment. My three older brothers and I are all Baha'is. Mm-hmm. How long did you live in California? Well, uh, my mother actually lived here until she passed away last year. Family was here, but I uh, went to study uh, some years in high school in Arizona, and then I went to Harvard in Massachusetts, and my life took me in different directions, but I've always enjoyed coming back here. And in fact, you're recording this interview from Carmel, where I've come <laughs> with my family. We rented a house and spending some time vacationing here and meeting with old friends and things like that. Oh, terrific. Now, why is it that you went to high school in Arizona? Well, uh, this was a very interesting school that my parents had heard about. They sent one of my older brothers there first called the Verde Valley School. It was founded by a man who had been in the Second World War, uh, served in intelligence, and decided that the reason the war took place was a lack of understanding between peoples in the world. And the best thing he could do would be to try to further intercultural understanding. He inherited some money uh, from a paper company that his parents had, and decided to found this school, uh, which was the first, I think, in the country to require anthropology. And they took field trips to Mexico, where the students lived in families for a time, and they took trips to Indian reservations. And all of this was very much in accord with Baha'i teachings. And there was also a Baha'i teacher there, a science teacher, Doug Kelly. And for me, that was important because I was interested in science, and I learned a lot from him. So I was very pleased when my parents offered me the opportunity to study there. Mm-hmm. What was your experience like at the high school in Arizona? At the Verde Valley School? Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, those years, this was my the last three years of high school, are very formative years for young people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was important for me to be away from my parents and to think and discover for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a principle in the Baha'i teachings that uh, every individual should decide about religious truth for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't automatically, you're not automatically considered a Baha'i, even though you may grow up in a Baha'i family. Hmm. So I was going through that normal, I think, uh, process of questioning and wondering why uh, I should be a Baha'i if, if I, uh, you know, if my neighbor was a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim, and why would be we be of different religions and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess like other kids growing up in a family, I thought I knew everything, <laughs> of course, about the Baha'i teachings and other subjects. Mm-hmm. Although I hadn't really read much in the Baha'i writings for myself. And so there were some things about the Baha'i teachings that I didn't correctly understand. And then uh, when I was just graduating from high school, the Baha'i community in America was just having the second year of uh, what they called youth projects in the summer, where young people would go to a different part of the country and, and do some activity that was useful for the Baha'i community. Uh, at the beginning, there was a training session of a week uh, long, if I remember correctly, at one of the Baha'i summer school properties, uh, one at Davidson uh, Baha'i School in the middle of the country. And for me, this was, uh, I, I, you know, I agreed to, to do that because it was an exciting adventure. For me, it was an eye-opener because the young people there were of all different racial backgrounds and came from different parts of the country, and the speakers were outstanding uh, Baha'i leaders. 
it, it really connected me as an individual to the Baha'i teachings in a way that I hadn't done as a member of my family. This mm-hmm. was uh, an experience that I had uh, separate from the family. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was very important because I then began to read in the Baha'i writings for myself. Uh, I, was, I went immediately to Harvard at that point, and that was the 60s when people were doing all kinds of crazy things and getting themselves very much uh, mixed up in, in many ways. I didn't identify with what my friends in college were doing, was, uh, getting extremely drunk, uh, going off always in groups everywhere. Um, I don't know, just an atmosphere that I didn't connect with. So I spent a lot of time reading the Baha'i writings, and that for me was very important to to understand for myself uh, what the Baha'i teachings were all about. Mm-hmm. And what did you study at Harvard? I think something like a quarter or a third of my class said at the beginning that they were going to study physics. And I was one of those. Of course, I studied science in high school, and it was a subject that interested me. Mm-hmm. Very fortunately for me, in my freshman year, I was uh, admitted into a small uh, seminar, about a dozen uh, students, I think, uh, with one of the older physics professors. And uh, it was very informal, and he just uh, talked about what physicists do, and a little bit about you know, the latest discoveries in physics, but not in a technical way. And he took us to see experiments that physicists were undertaking with the uh, electron accelerator they had at Harvard, and they were like huge concrete blocks and big machinery, and people would put this together over a period of years, and then they'd push the button and see whether their theory was was proved or disproved. Mm -hmm. And maybe somebody else would get there before them and publish the article before them and get all the the acclaim and so forth. And, And I realized that Studying a subject like physics is very exciting because you're you're learning hundreds of years of human um, discovery. Mm. But being a physicist was quite a different story. <laughs> I didn't find what I saw very exciting at all, mm. and so I decided that uh, it would you know I should change fields. I went first into engineering, and then I took a trip with another Baha'i youth to South America and visited Baha'is in the remote areas of Bolivia where I saw some of the poorest people in the world, and uh, that changed my view of what was really needed in the world. I decided that really there was quite a lot of science and technology, and relatively little in the way of attention to the great social problems and yawning uh, inequalities uh, in, in global society. And so when I got back to school, I decided that I should try to study something more relevant to that kind of problem. So gradually I moved into economics. I graduated in engineering, but I was admitted to graduate studies at Harvard in economics, so I continued into that field and have been an economist ever since. Now, does your father being an economist have any impact on your decision to be an economist, or was that just coincidental? Well, I know. I think it's coincidence. Actually, my father was, a, he had uh, done a business school degree, MBA at uh, Stanford. Mm. And uh, that's rather different than economics. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it is. So you graduated from Harvard. Yes. And uh, what did you do after that? Well, I interviewed, uh, when I was studying graduate school at Harvard, um, I interviewed with the World Bank. Many Baha'is, I think, and I was certainly one of them, make an effort to find a career that expresses their hope to be of service to mankind. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important decision that young people make early in their lives of, what they want to study and what kind of career they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And many Baha'is go into careers that are oriented towards uh, service, which reflects this important principle in their faith. Mm-hmm. 
And so I was attracted to the idea of working for the World Bank, uh, but the guy said they looked at what I'd been studying, which was international trade and uh, such things, and he said, really, uh, you are more suited for the International Monetary Fund. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't really know much about the IMF, but uh, I interviewed with them, and they offered me a position, so I went to work for them. Uh, they're a twin institution of the World Bank and they're very central to the global financial system and the relations between countries in resolving international financial crises. Mm-hmm. So it turned out to be a very interesting career. 27 years I, I spent with the IMF. Mm-hmm. And what was your role in the IMF? Well, the IMF has uh, more than a 1,000 PhD economists. It's mm-hmm. the largest concentration of economists anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of them uh, work directly on country uh, issues. In other words, there's a, a group of economists working for each member uh, on the problems of each member country, writing papers for the board of the IMF, uh, which represents all the member countries, mm-hmm. about the policies and the prospects and problems of each uh, each country. Mm-hmm. And so I spent most of my time doing that kind of work. I also volunteered for overseas assignments. Because the IMF has a relatively small number of permanent offices in different countries where there's particular reason to have such an office. Mm-hmm. So I spent a couple of years in Haiti. I spent a couple of years in Sierra Leone. I uh, was uh, later posted as the IMF representative in Bulgaria, where I met my current wife mm-hmm. and am now living. And mm-hmm. uh, my last assignment was three years in Madagascar, mm-hmm. uh, representing the IMF. Mm-hmm. I also spent five years in the IMF Institute, which is a training arm of the IMF. It does courses for officials of member countries, and it also uh, uh, organizes training programs for the staff of the IMF, the new staff and ongoing uh, professional development kinds of courses for the staff. Mm-hmm. So for a while I was involved in, in organizing, I was responsible for that program. Mm-hmm. And do you have any experiences to share while you were in Haiti? Well, Haiti was a very interesting place to live. That was the period of baby dock, and there was endless corruption. I think uh, the most important thing, well, several things I learned there. One was that really the, the level of honesty versus corruption of a government is by far the most important characteristic that determines whether or not a country uh, prospers or doesn't. Mm. Unfortunately, most of the governments of the world are not fully dedicated to the well-being of the people. They rather represent uh, different kinds of more narrow interests. Mm-hmm. And that's a very serious uh, problem in the world. Mm-hmm. Another thing I learned, because Haiti is fairly close to the United States, and I was coming back and forth to Washington fairly often, uh, is that there are many uh, qualities of people in the very poorest countries. Haiti is certainly one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, that people in these countries have many qualities that in, in many ways uh, we have lost in America. Mm. And so we think, uh, you know, we think we're, we're so well off and we feel so sorry for the people in poor countries. Uh, and in many ways, of course, they do suffer materially, but in other ways they, they often have qualities that one misses when one comes back to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, people are very open and friendly. You find this also in Africa and many other places in the world. Uh, so if you walk down the street, you feel that you're communicating with the people around you. There's a sense of being part of the community and people being aware of each other. Mm-hmm. And this follows through to people forming very good friendships and having real interest in each other as human beings. 
whereas you come to the United States and you get in an elevator and people are all looking up at the corners and at the numbers changing and so on and they're avoiding uh, talking to each other. You mm. walk down the street in big cities and it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, the interactions in a supermarket, for instance, are generally rather superficial, you know, have a nice day, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, and one really misses the sense of being in a human community that you have in these poor places in the world, but where people are more more human in some ways. I don't know how to put it. Yeah. Do you have any stories to share while you were in Sierra Leone? Well, it was quite similar, actually. Uh, that I was in Sierra Leone before the Civil War uh, broke out, all of the atrocities that people have heard about uh, since. Uh, but the seeds of those conflicts were, were very much there, and again, there were huge issues of corruption and misuse of uh, resources and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's really, uh, you know, when you see these things close up, you can't help but think about the tremendous human cost of war, which we're all more or less aware of, you know, millions of people being killed or whatever, casualties and so on. But when leaders, especially of poor countries, are stealing huge amounts of the public resources, I think the the impact, the human impact of that is certainly on the same scale as the impact of a war. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the moral and ethical weight of that, you know, the responsibility for that wrongdoing is of a similar uh, degree. Sure. It's really, uh, I mean, there's so many examples of, of how people's lives have been completely uh, shattered or undermined. All of their opportunities in life have been destroyed because of the greed and the self-interest of a few leaders. Mm -hmm. Certainly one saw that in Sierra Leone at the time. The yeah. fact that they descended into, into outright war is not all that uh, surprising. Mm -hmm. um, but of course on a human level, again, you know, one in a country like that one forms uh, many friendships. And one thing that I remember that really struck me is some friends that I had there, Baha'i friends, uh, young people. The husband was working in the American embassy and the wife was working as a teacher things were so hard for them that they couldn't live together. There was no place for them to live. They were living with their respective parents, even after they had a son. And they wanted very much to come to America as a land of opportunity where they could make a better life for themselves. Uh, and, I, and their wife, uh, Susan, asked me if I could help her get a, uh, a visa, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't have any particular you know, in with the <laughs> visa authorities. Right. But if she could find a way to come legally to the United States, I'd be happy to help her uh, try to find work. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometime after I came back to Washington, I got a call from her, and she was in New Jersey, I think, and uh, said, you know, um, not too many jobs up here. Can <laughs> I come down to Washington? Can you help me? Mm. So at that point, I didn't ask her about the visa. She was already in the United States. So right. I said, yeah, I'll come down, and I'll see what I can do. And I put a notice on the bulletin board in the World Bank if anybody wanted to hire her. Mm-hmm. And uh, immediately she had offers to, to work helping in the home. Mm -hmm. She uh, had a succession, a succession of jobs. Um, one lady taught her how to drive so she could drive the kids to school and this and that. Mm -hmm. She worked very hard. She had um, the kinds of experiences that people, especially in southern states, uh, have with race discrimination and so on, discouraging uh, incidents. But she didn't let them bother her. She just went on. She worked hard. And I think, if I remember correctly, after about a year, she brought her husband and children uh, to this country. They had a, an apartment. They had a couple of cars. They had several jobs between them. 
she eventually uh, studied as a nurse. They bought a house. Wow. Uh, at one point, their house had at least a dozen uh, Sierra Leonean refugees in it. <laughs> and uh, I was just incredibly impressed at how somebody who's willing to work hard can come to this country and can make their way. Yeah. And how important that is that they are dedicated to working hard and not uh, being too discouraged by the obstacles that are put in their way. Right. And what a contrast that is to many people who have been in this country longer. I mean, their their ancestors have been here. They've grown up here. They're more expecting the society to do something for them right. and uh, less willing to put the hard work in and therefore don't uh, make the same progress. Right. Do you have any experiences in Madagascar that you can share? Well, Madagascar was a very interesting assignment. I guess more people know about it after the film Madagascar, but it's yeah. really not well known in this country. It's a very large island. Some people call it almost a continent. With 16 million people population off of the coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean, southern hemisphere, very far away from here. Mm. And a very poor country. In fact, it had declined basically uh, ever since it uh, received independence from the French as a French colony. Uh, all the indicators of health and well-being and roads and telephones and all those things were just in constant decline to about a third of the level that they were at the uh, end of colonial period because of the pursuit by the government of ill-conceived and now uh, outmoded uh, concepts of social socialist kind of uh, governance and so forth, and a lot of corruption also. So a country in real need, uh, but uh, in consulting with friends, I was told that the, uh, the capital is, is at relatively high elevation in the center of the country, and uh, disease was not a big problem. See, I had, I had twins at that point and another baby just born, uh, little kids, two years apart, a year and a half apart. Mm. So I was really concerned about an environment that would be uh, safe and helpful for the family. Mm -hmm. Many of the IMF posts are in dangerous places and places in conflict or health problems and so on. So I was told um, living in Madagascar was very pleasant. Uh, yes, it was a poor country, but the um, circumstances in the capital for us would be fine and uh, lots of interesting things to do to help the country. So uh, I agreed to go there, and um, after about a year there, uh, suddenly there was a contested election. The young mayor of the capital uh, said that he had won the presidential election, and the guy who'd been the ruler on and off for 20 years uh, didn't agree. And they started uh, basically a civil war, and there were suddenly two governments and two central banks. <laughs> it was quite a oh boy. situation. And the uh, head of the department in the IMF, the uh, African department responsible for Madagascar, was just about to retire. And he decided that I shouldn't be there, that we should be evacuated. Mm. In fact, I was the only uh, diplomat, I think, who was evacuated. And I didn't think it was the right thing, but um, that's what they told me to do. Mm. So uh, we had 24 hours to get out of the country, and we went to Bulgaria and uh, found an apartment and settled there while things developed in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. And when it became a little clearer that the young guy was going to win this standoff, he finally got, he got the backing of the American government and eventually uh, many others. Uh, we went back and I was working quite closely with him because he was a completely different type of ruler is. He's still there. He was a businessman. He had uh, practically no links to France. His links were more to Germany and Scandinavian countries. Uh, he was trying to speak English rather than French. Uh, his products 
had English on them. He had been putting up English language signs around the capital, and he very much oriented to opening the country to broader relationships, not just with France, with South Africa and other neighboring African countries and other countries in general, and very open to uh, advice and to figuring out how to better run the country. So that was a very interesting experience for me, and mm. that was my last assignment with the IMF before I decided to take early retirement and um, move back to Bulgaria with my family. And why did you choose Bulgaria to move back to? Well, as I say, we have three uh, small children, and we're very much looking for a place that would be um, a good place, a good environment for them to grow up. We thought about coming back to the state, but my wife has something like 23 first cousins, <laughs> uh, most of whom are still living in the same uh, area where she grew up in Bulgaria, and many other relatives there, and her parents who'd been living with us since our twins were born liked the idea of going back there. Uh, and in general, it's a very child-friendly society. Uh, people are very concerned with the welfare of kids, and the town we're in, the downtown, is all pedestrian-only. We don't have to worry about fast traffic weaving uh, by. We have a car, but we can't really use it except for going to other towns, because in town you walk everywhere, and it's very friendly. Um, mm. The families get to know each other. The children stay together in their class in school with one teacher for the first four years, and they really form a sense of, of friendship and and to me, that was all very important. Maybe they're old-fashioned values. I don't know that we must have had at one time in small towns in America, but at least my family, my three brothers, they were all scattered all around the world, and I don't really have any relatives except one brother still in the United States, and certainly nothing like the family support system that my wife has in Bulgaria. Mm. And also, um, it's an interesting country to be in. They just joined the European Union in January. Things are changing very fast there. The Baha'i community is very interesting, and we have a lot of things uh, we can do to contribute to their activities. Mm -hmm. So we feel useful, and that's an important uh, quality, I think. Sure. So the IMF and the World Bank have had a, a lot of criticism in the area of economic reform where in order to strive for the control of, say, inflation, screws to the economy have been battened down so that the in, uh, inflation can be curbed, but in the meantime, it, cre it creates an unprecedented uh, negative effect on, on the less materially able or the or those have, who have less money. And I'm wondering what, what your reply would be to folks that have this impression of the IMF. Well, uh, there are many aspects of this question. Let me try to address them. One is that the IMF, is, many people don't understand it, it's a club of member countries, and its board is composed of the representatives of the 180-plus countries uh, that compose the institution. So uh, it does what, the, what it was set up to do by the member countries. So there's a whole class of criticism, which I think are in many cases very valid, uh, which are directed at the IMF, but they really should be directed at member countries who control it, mm -hmm. not at the institution per se, uh, because the global system is unjust and unequal, and there are many problems in the world that need to be solved, uh, but you can't ask an institution to solve them if it's, if it's responsible to its members, you see, and if they don't want those questions addressed. Mm -hmm. So that's one class of criticism. 
Mm-hmm. And we can go into more detail if you want, but I think uh, a lot of the objections that people have to what they see as uh, problems in the world are, they really should address to their own political leaders, uh, not to the IMF as an institution. Another issue is that the IMF, like everybody else, is learning in the world. The world is changing and everybody is learning. And uh, some people who criticize the IMF, including uh, Stiglitz, for instance, Nobel Prize winner, whose book sold a million copies, mm-hmm. is in many ways unfair because it's with the benefit of hindsight, looking backwards and saying, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that, but it doesn't fairly take into account the uh, circumstances of the time. Uh, for example, uh, the IMF was called in to help South Korea at the, at the time of the uh, Asian crisis. It was one of the later countries to be involved in the crisis, and it was very sudden. And uh, apparently there was something like three days uh, from running out of reserves and having a, a huge problem when the IMF was called in. So you know, my colleagues who went there had literally no time at all to put together some kind of a package of policies to try to help the country. So it's not fair to say that really they should have consulted more with academics and with the community and so forth and so on and gotten different views and so on. There simply wasn't time to do that. Um, So that's another class of criticism Mm -hmm. that failed to take into account the fact that, yes, now we, uh, the general wisdom is that you shouldn't open capital accounts so fast unless you have founder financial systems and so forth. Uh, But that was not something that was understood before the Asian crisis. And it wasn't just the IMF, it was virtually everybody who, you know, we haven't had that experience yet yet of the Asian crisis, so it's not fair with hindsight to go back and say, oh, you should have understood that beforehand. So that's a couple of problems. Another is that people say, and again, this is uh, some of the same people, that the IMF should be more open, should be more politically accountable, uh, respond more to the desires of uh, of the people of the member countries. This is a very fundamental question. The IMF uh, was set up as almost a policeman, if you like, for the international financial system, a set of rules that countries agree to when they join, and they're supposed to abide by those rules, and they were designed to try to prevent the kinds of conditions that led to the Second World War. The IMF and the World Bank were founded at the end of, or actually the conference was held in 1944, they were conceived during the Second World War, and the idea was to try to prevent war in the future. So the World Bank was set up as a loan-giving organization to help with reconstruction after the war and and development, and the IMF was set up as sort of the policeman of the the system to enforce uh, certain rules. Well, the function of a policeman is to enforce (laughs) rules. You don't, you know, the policeman doesn't suddenly call together a consultative body and try to... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get some agreement between the parties and so on. You have to have mm-hmm. clear rules and they're enforced. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's the way it works. Right. And that's the role of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we need a different kind of institution. Again, mm-hmm. as I said before, the, there are questions uh, that need to be addressed in the world and you know, different ways of addressing them. But the, right. um, the IMF, as you know, uh, given its mandate, I think has done a relatively good job. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it is trying to be more open in terms of sharing information with markets and with the public, and that's very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's some of its functions that it needs to to do efficiently and quickly and and not be subject to political influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I say that because, um, you know, I think it's good in theory to have a 
an open, uh, you know, to talk about openness. But then the question is, how does that work in practice? And when you look at the criticisms, you often find that there is very politically motivated argument there that either the Democrats or the Republicans, whoever in this country, are pushing their particular agenda. And it's not the role of an international institution to get into domestic politics. Mm. Uh, the political issues have to be resolved at the national level, and then those representatives represent the country in, at the international level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, in terms of data and so on, uh, a lot has already been accomplished as a result of the, the criticisms of the IMF, and they've become more open. Uh, but I don't think it's appropriate for that kind of institution to have conferences of uh, NGOs, for instance, in member countries and uh, and be responsible to them. That's not who the membership of that institution is. To widen the the responsible board to NGOs wouldn't be tenable. No, it would be untenable, but it would be a very different institution. The uh, United Nations is rife with politics. And when my brother worked for a UN agency for many years, and uh, they have all kinds of rules about hiring uh, proportionately to the nationalities of the member countries, and then they end up having to hire people who are favored by some head of state somewhere and not the people who are the most capable. And then the people who are hired feel responsible to the countries that you know, pushed for them to be appointed. Uh, so you have all kinds of political interference. And um, it's just a very um, unfortunate and ineffective uh, way of organizing international institutions. Very inefficient and um, opens the door to various problems of corruption and so on. Mm-hmm. The IMF, fortunately, was set up at the beginning by people uh, representing finance ministries who believed that finance and economics were very important aspects of the global system and needed to be managed by professionals, mm-hmm. in the same way that you would military people to be responsible for military operations. Mm-hmm. And they intentionally designed the institution so that they would have a minimum of this kind of political interference. And that's why the board is set up the way it is. It is even represents ministries of finance, not State Department or foreign ministry. And that's an important difference. Mm-hmm. So set up to be relatively free from the very messy uh, reality of the way the governments of the world operate when it comes to their internal uh, process. Mm-hmm. Because it was seen to be an important uh, technical issue. Now, it's true that there are lots of uh, aspects of economics that are very important political topics, but uh, as I say, uh, that's not a debate that I think can take place within an international institution. It has to take place within the political process in the member countries. Mm-hmm. And then those countries need to represent themselves at the international level. Right. So the, the IMF has been recognized as being one of the most effective institutions uh, because it has been relatively to the kinds of issues that you and I uh, think are important in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I personally have seen a lot of progress. When I joined the IMF, we, the, uh, it was the time of the Cold War, and uh, there were, we had Romania and we had Yugoslavia who were members from the Eastern Bloc, and, the, and South Africa was a member. Uh, and in those days, you couldn't talk about uh, sensitive subjects like uh, apartheid in South Africa or military expenditures or even corruption it wasn't on the agenda. Mm. Uh, government Member governments were too sensitive about the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
a lot of progress has been made. We talk about all these subjects very openly now, and government is now recognized to be an extremely central issue in, uh, in economic policy debate. Um, so I think that's good, but that that doesn't mean that... Uh, I mean, that's been accomplished within the present uh, structural framework of the IMF. That doesn't mean we should change the, the basic structure. Mm-hmm. Greg, can you give me some experience that you had where you saw the IMF improve the life of people? Yes, I think that was another thing I meant to say, that it's in general it's very easy for people to criticize and it's very hard to be constructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the main points in my book on globalization, which I'd like to talk about. But yeah, we'll, we'll be getting there. In fact, uh, there's a lot of criticism in the world that doesn't accomplish anything. And what we need is a positive vision of what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, along those lines, yes, the IMF has made mistakes. Any any person in any institution makes mistakes, and uh, hopefully it learns from them. Mm-hmm. But uh, often people ignore the many positive things that are going on that are less newsworthy, if you like, uh, attract less attention, but are extremely important. So there are many, many functions of international institutions, of which there are thousands now in the world, uh, that we all take for granted because they work smoothly. People who object, for instance, to globalization are often unaware. There are many, many functions in the world today that functions that are supervised smoothly and effectively at the international level, uh, and there would be tremendous problems if, if they weren't. But because it's, it's all working properly, nobody pays any attention to it. So there are many things the IMF does, the education arm that I was in, the training arm, which is very important for building capacity in member countries. They collect data and publish it, which is very important for smooth functioning of the global system. Uh, They have enormous expertise in economic uh, policy, and they give advice to member countries, and that's usually uh, very much appreciated by the member countries because it's more objective than the domestic economic analysis very often. And in many countries where the capacity for economic analysis has not been uh, fully developed, uh, the annual exercise of an IMF team coming in and going through all the available data and pulling together the experts, um, ministers, and so forth from the different branches of the government involved in economic policy and central bank, and sitting them down and going through the whole picture with them because the IMF team has to write a paper summarizing the situation, that exercise is very valuable for the member countries. And then those papers are published and everybody can read them. So. This is also, I think, a very uh, useful uh, exercise. Mm. Unfortunately, the, in general, the international institutions are, were created to resolve the last crisis, not the next one. Mm. And they're often not as prepared as they ought to be to handle crises that come up because they haven't been anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I'm very concerned, and many other economists are very concerned about what are called global imbalances, that the For example, the Chinese have more than $1.2 trillion of reserves and they're growing very, very fast. And everybody recognizes that can continue forever. On the other hand, uh, American households actually have negative savings. People are spending more than their income, and that obviously can't go on forever. Did you say that the Chinese are depleting their reserves? No, their reserves are increasing. Ah, okay, increasing. By leaps and bounds, Mm. at a huge rate, and Mm -hmm. they cannot be sustained. And, but unfortunately, the domestic situation in both China and the U.S., and now in oil exporting countries that also have very large increase in reserves, 
doesn't lead any of them to want to come together to try to resolve these problems jointly. The IMF is the logical institution where these important subjects should be discussed and resolved, Mm -hmm. but the IMF itself doesn't have the clout that it needs to talk to important countries like the U.S. and China and knock heads together and get them to uh, really take serious measures to address these problems. So although the IMF has tried, it was given a mandate last year and it's tried to to do exactly that, you know, to gather people together and uh, discuss these issues, uh, it seems to that they haven't been able to make any uh, significant progress. So it's very likely, in my view, that there'll be some kind of very large crisis and then there'll be all kinds of finger-pointing at mm. who was responsible and who didn't do their job and so forth and so on. Right. This has been the story of the last 150 years. We've had one crisis after another in the world, and um, sometimes very serious, like the world wars, and then people say, my goodness, how did we get into that mess? Uh, Surely we should try to avoid it in the future. And then there's a surge of uh, effort to build new institutions that might give us some assurance that we won't get into such problems again. Right. That's how the IMF came into being in the World Bank. Well, what would happen to the Chinese economy if it kept going the way it was? What's the threat? Well, there are all kinds of things to worry about. Economists who have studied uh, China say that a lot of the, you know, they have a huge investment uh, level, and apparently a lot of that investment is not very efficient. In fact, it may actually have negative returns. That's a very bad idea from an economic point of view, and eventually somebody has to pay the cost, whether it's because the banks who have lent to industries uh, find they have huge bad loans, that has to be paid somehow or some other way. Uh, there are also very big social issues in China. I think the reason why the Chinese or the government is so intent on uh, rapid uh, growth is because it's, that's the way they see of staying in power, keeping people happy uh, in, in view of uh, huge uh, social stresses and strains. But uh, it's a bit uh, contradictory that a supposedly communist government, a totalitarian government with limited political freedoms in the country, would be overseeing a situation where the country is becoming one of the most unequal countries in the world in terms of economic wealth and uh, income distribution and so on. Uh, Surely that creates strength. Another issue that people have raised is that um, with all the opportunities in the private sector, the uh, party, and therefore the government, is having trouble recruiting talented young people. So as years pass, uh, if the government doesn't attract the talented needs, uh, they can't run a a huge country where so much also of what the country does is in the public sector. They're trying to, they've announced that they want to uh, form an aerospace industry to compete with Boeing and uh, Airbus and it will be a public enterprise. Uh, it's hard to see how they could succeed in such a highly competitive uh, field um, trying to combine the, uh, the structure of the, of the party with what's well, obviously a technically very complex subject that requires the best of modern uh, management techniques. Mm-hmm. Even the Europeans are having serious problems with Airbus because of political, the political structure of the ownership and I just see how the Chinese could combine these seemingly contradictory elements in their system. Mm. So all of those are very fundamental uh, problems. And then the immediate one is that they've kept the exchange rate uh, constant in order to 
against the dollar in order to encourage investment and encourage exporters. And that has led them to this situation where they're just buying enormous, enormous quantities of dollars to maintain the exchange rate, and, and that can't go on forever. Ah, uh, okay. So somehow that has to be resolved. Yeah. So, Greg, let's talk about your book. You wrote a book called One World, One People, How Globalization is Shaping Our Future. Okay. What moved you to write this book? Well, I actually started on it some years ago. Uh, the subject, which is now called globalization, uh, has always fascinated me, how the world is increasingly becoming smaller and smaller. And now I think it's, uh, it has risen uh, very quickly to be a very high-priority, uh, high-profile subject in the world. Uh, there's so many um, ways in which all of us everywhere in the world are being influenced by these forces of globalization. And it's also uh, raising many problems and issues uh, that need to be addressed and need to be resolved. And so combining my experience at the international level and working with governments so many years in the IMF, and uh, my Baha'i background, uh, believing very much in the unity of mankind, and that this is inevitable that uh, the globe should become smaller, and we all try to learn how to live together on this planet, um, I think I have some things to say on the subject that others have not said, even though there have been many uh, books already written. Um, there are a number of things that I'm talking about in my book that are, are new, are different. Mm-hmm. And what do you bring that's different to the table in the issue of globalization? Well, one thing I've tried to do is to take a very broad approach. Uh, most people who write about globalization are an expert of some kind, and maybe an economist who writes about trade, for example, a uh, journalist who, uh, like uh, Friedman, who talks, talks about his personal experiences traveling around the world and so on. Mm-hmm. I try to step back and take a much broader look at what's been going on in the last 150 years with the, uh, with the learning process, I think, uh, humankind uh, learning uh, about how to live on a shrinking planet, and it's a process that uh, clearly hasn't finished. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to understand it because we can see what's happened until now, we get some idea of where it's taking us. Um, another thing that uh, I think is quite important is, as an economist, you're, you're trained to uh, try to understand the motives to try to understand what drives things. And uh, the usual description of globalization is that, uh, yes, it's much cheaper for the Chinese to make things, so our factories close and things are made in China. Uh, and that is actually not a very good description of what's happening, and it doesn't answer the question of why. Uh, and let me explain that. First is even in terms of physical merchandise, yes, it's true the Chinese have cheaper labor, so it may be cheaper to to make something there. But if you look at the patterns of trade in the world, you see that uh, for big countries like the United States, 70% of the trade is in the same customs categories. It's the same kinds of items going in two directions. So it is not at all a question of the classical economics that one studies in school, that one country will export machinery and the other country will export agricultural goods, um, something like that. It is, in fact, an explosion of diversity of products available in the world and a clear demand on the part of the people of the world for choice, for having uh, many different uh, kinds of, of things to consume. 
So let me illustrate, for example, in this country, uh, I remember when it was, for instance, in Washington, D.C., it was a big event to have an Ethiopian restaurant open. And now there are all kinds of restaurants and all kinds of different uh, choices of food to, you know, to buy in the stores and to eat in restaurants. That wouldn't exist if people didn't enjoy it, if they didn't like it, if they didn't want something new, have a new experience. They, Advertisers tell us that the word new is the important, most important thing you can put on a product. And so we see that in the, in the stores. Uh, we see an incredible uh, diversity of products available. And uh, this re- reflects something in us. I mean, it's not just because it's there. It's the, these things must be sold. The people must be going to those restaurants. So it, it must reflect something in us that appreciates diversity, that's interested in new experiences. Uh, and that's what's interesting to me because that's very much uh, along the lines of what Baha'is have been saying for many years, that it isn't uniformity which we're heading towards. It is unity in diversity. It is an appreciation of diversity that is, uh, that's what makes life interesting. It's what makes our continuing experiences interesting to us. And this is reaching to every corner of the globe. People are having more and more opportunities to experience different kinds of culture and uh, entertainments and everything. And obviously people like that. Now, the question is, of course, is maybe moving too fast. For many people, it's threatening. Uh, many people find it very disturbing that life is changing so quickly, uh, and they would like to slow it down. And maybe it is disorienting. Maybe it is too much disruption too quickly. But the trend is quite clear that people like it. You get a new, uh, a new way of talking on the telephone, and everybody goes for it. Uh, Cheaper methods of travel and communications are enormously profitable because there's a demand for them. Not just because they exist, it's because people want that. So to say, you know, one is against globalization, I think many people say that because they're worried about jobs or one particular aspect of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think fundamentally, people everywhere are uh, enjoying the experience of learning more about people who are different from themselves. Mm. This, in fact, is the basis of a lot of entertainment. Even Shakespeare, uh, his plays are often set in what were then exotic locales with strange kinds of people, and that has always been fascinating to us as human beings. Hmm. The question then becomes, what what is our role as individuals in this process? Mm-hmm. Um, again, part of, I think, what people will react to in today's world is a sense of powerlessness. And, in fact, there's a very good book by Jonathan Shell called The Unconquerable World, in which he talks about the shift in the reality of power in the world. Uh, And I talk about this a bit in my book. Mao Zedong said that power flows from the barrel of a gun. Mm. And this has been the the basis of governance and uh, thinking about power uh, for many centuries. Uh, we, We talk about the great powers, for example, in English, and that means militarily important countries. Uh, but what has happened since the invention of discovery of nuclear uh, energy and the atomic bomb and so forth is that uh, the powerful countries have become like huge monsters that can't move. The power is so great that it can't be used. Mm. And we have discovered uh, with Gandhi and uh, Solidarity in Poland and many other movements around the world that when ordinary citizens and form a common view when they can work together with a common objective, 
they can become far more powerful than the most powerful military and government machines in the world. Mm-hmm. And we've had one case after another of that. We witnessed that in Madagascar. The young man who claimed to have won the presidential election had hundreds of thousands of people in the street every day mm-hmm. uh, in, in rallies. And in the end, that was far more powerful than the, than the previous government's military might and so forth. Mm-hmm. So this is a very fundamental change in human thinking, and I think we're far from from understanding it uh, yet. Uh, there are lots of people in the world who still think in terms of the old uh, paradigms of military might and and uh, winning elections and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what is actually important, I think, in today's world is that people uh, become aware and educated about what's happening in the world and then form a view of what they would like the world to become. We have to have a vision of the future. Uh, in Proverbs in the Bible, you read, where there is no vision, the people perish. Mm. It is, it's essential that we have a vision of where we want to go or we won't go anywhere. And so the public, unfortunately, the leaders, so-called leaders, very rarely provide vision anymore. They're listening to their polls. They want to know what the public wants. Right. And then they respond. Mm-hmm. So it's up to us as public to have some idea of what we want the world to be, and then we can push the leaders in that direction. Mm. So, yes, there are things about globalization or other issues that aren't desirable, could be managing them differently, but the politicians need to hear from the people what they want, and then they can go in that direction. That's part of the object of my book, is to help educate people about what globalization is, uh, what are the positive and negative aspects of it, what it might be, and uh, to help people form their own vision of what they would like the world to be for themselves in the future and for their children and grandchildren, and then we can move in that direction. I hope people will read my book, and I hope to hear from people <laughs> who've read the book to, to know their thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book shouldn't be one way. There should be some kind of a dialogue, and mm-hmm. maybe I would write another one. <laughs> Do you have one in the works? Not yet. I'm waiting yeah. to hear what people yeah. think about this one. Okay. Very good. Well, Greg, thank you very much. Thank you. you. I appreciate okay. it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Greg Dahl, a Baha'i who was an economist and worked for the IMF for 27 years, and is the author of the book, One World, One People, How Globalization is Shaping Our Future. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Oh
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.